No pressure. That's Lots right. of pressure. <laughs> You're going to keep the mic on and run commentary throughout today? <laughs> that could be entertaining. Well, good morning. Welcome. It's a joy to see you all. Uh, the few, the proud, the Victoria Day faithful. Uh, I'm glad you guys are here, and if you're online, we're glad you're with us as well today. Uh, we do have a bit of an in-house family announcement, something nice to say. Um, after seven months, we have finally hired a new worship pastor for our church, and we will be welcoming um, Olivier Cabutze to join our staff uh, he actually will start leading next Sunday uh, for us, which is wonderful. Uh, by a kind of, I think, sovereign irony, uh, we sent our worship pastor to Kenya, and God has sent us a worship pastor from Rwanda. So the Heavenly Exchange program is in work, uh, and this is, this is great. Now, he and his family live in West Vancouver, and uh, we'll be excited to join them and welcome them. So we'll have some times to meet them and some worship nights together coming up soon. So... Uh, it's been seven months, long time, but we were waiting and praying uh, for the person that God had led to us. In the meantime, I just want to say um, our worship ministry has been upheld in a large way by our two in-house worship leaders, worship leaders not here at the moment, uh, Jacob Harada and my wife, Liesl, uh, have been part of that. And of course, Dana, Dana's in the back right now, but Dana and my friend Paul Lenz have also helped us with this interim time. And I'm just deeply grateful for them and for Nathan and Elliot, wherever you guys are. Nathan's in the booth. Hi, Nathan. Okay. Uh, we're grateful for all the work that has gone into making this ministry run as smoothly as it can for these past months. So, exciting stuff. Uh, I'm glad to be moving on with these things. Okay, uh, we have a message today on, uh, if you're looking at your notes, you have a message today on Jeremiah and mental health, which is, you know, uh, originally when we planned this series, um, this is a topic that came up walking through the book of Jeremiah. It seemed like an appropriate thing to address. And originally, we were going to try and bring someone else to come in and talk about this. We we're going to have someone, other person come in. And guess what? It ends up being me. So um, I should declare at the outset, I'm not a mental health expert. Um, I have mental health, right? <laughs> I, I am human, okay? So uh, the struggles you face are struggles I face. Uh, but I am not coming this morning to make pronouncements about mental health in the way uh, that a mental health professional. So what is it, what's the caveat? I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV. Um, so, so, you know, let, let's talk about these things wisely and faithfully together. Uh, and I'm going to begin with our scriptures, which give us a context for what I want to say, uh, which document, uh, it's quite a bit of text, but it documents a series of events that would is to what is likely the lowest point in Jeremiah's life, absolute lowest point in his life. So I'm going to read two texts first now. They'll be on the screen, uh, one text first, and then I'll talk about it. Uh, let's begin with Jeremiah chapter 37. I'm going to read verses 11 through to verse 21. Now, it happened when the army of the Chaldeans had lifted the siege from Jerusalem because of Pharaoh's army, so the Egyptians have come up and the Chal there's a kind of ploy going on, that Jeremiah went out from Jerusalem to go to the land of Benjamin in order to take possession of some property there among the people. So Benjamin's right nearby. When he was at the gate of Benjamin, a captain of the guard whose name was Irejah, the son of Shelemiah, the son of Hananiah, was there. And he arrested Jeremiah the prophet, saying, You are going over to the Chaldeans. But Jeremiah said, A lie! I am not going over to the Chaldeans. Yet he, the guard, would not listen to him. So Irijah arrested Jeremiah and brought him to the officials. Then the officials were angry at Jeremiah and beat him, and they put him in jail in the house of Jonathan the scribe, which they had made into the prison. For Jeremiah had come into the dungeon, that is, the vaulted cell, and Jeremiah stayed there 
many days. Now, King Zedekiah sent and took him out, and in his palace the king secretly asked him and said, Is there a word from the Lord? And Jeremiah said, There is. Then he said, You will be given into the hand of the king of Babylon. You're doomed. Okay? Moreover, Jeremiah said to the king of Zedekiah, In what way have I sinned against you or against your servants or against this people that you've put me in prison? Where then are your prophets who prophesied to you, saying, The king of Babylon will not come against you or against this land? But now please listen, O my lord the king. Please let my petition come before you, and do not make me return to the house of Jonathan the scribe, that I may die there. Then king Zedekiah gave commandment, and they committed Jeremiah to the court of the guardhouse, and gave him a loaf of bread daily from the baker's street until all the bread in the city was gone. So Jeremiah remained in the court of the guardhouse. So, Let's pause for a couple minutes. We're at the tail end of the life of Judah, the country of Judah. This is the tail end, okay? Uh, Babylonians have been massing at the city gates. Uh, Cities around them have fallen. The bread is gone, so there's famine on the rise. Like, this is a really, really dire situation. And the armies of Judah are taking stock of their doom and what's about to happen. Now, remember that throughout much of Jeremiah's ministry, he's been preaching repentance and a restoration, repent and be made right with the Lord, but he's also preaching that the arrival of the Babylonian army is in some sense God's judgment. God's going to punish you for the way you've turned away from God. You don't get to stay and keep these things. And this has made Jeremiah very few friends among Israel's elite. People aren't very happy with him about this. So in the passage we just read, there was a sudden change. The Babylonians or Chaldeans have temporarily withdrawn from their siege of the city. And in response, Jeremiah decided to run an errand. That's all he's going to do. He's going to the exit city to visit nearby Benjamin. The territory of Benjamin is pretty close to Jerusalem. And take possession of some property. In some ways, this is kind of like a humdrum detail. And on that day, Jeremiah went out to get some milk, right? Feels very mundane. But we can't miss the significance of the action. What's the point of owning property if the Babylonians are about to wipe everybody out, right? I mean, if you're in a place where a forest fire is coming through in the next week, that's not the time to buy a house in that town. Here's Jeremiah buying property just before it's about to be all wiped out. It's astonishing. But it's a visible display of Jeremiah's conviction that God's people are coming back. I'm buying property because despite what's happening, we're coming back. God's made promises, and I'm going to show that promise by putting my money where my mouth is. It's a very faithful thing, a very powerful thing that he does. But in the middle of this act of really radical faith, radical displaying faith of what's going on, Jeremiah is stopped by the gate guard and then accused of defection. You can hear his outrage in this thing. Have any of you ever been falsely accused of something? I didn't do that. I was doing the exact opposite thing. What do you mean? You could feel the sense of his frustration about how this is going. Maybe the gate guard was fearful. Maybe he'd had a bad day. Maybe he's kind of panicky. Maybe he was tired of Jeremiah's message. I probably might have been in his situation. Uh, Maybe he wanted a scapegoat for the bad situation Judah was in. Who knows? Doesn't matter the reason. Whatever it was, Jeremiah's put into the makeshift prison, the court of the gatehouse. They didn't really have prisons in the ancient world. They just killed you. So it was at least a mercy to be put into jail in this way. But that's not the end of the troubles. And the next passage, we see how things get even worse for Jeremiah. So let's look at Jeremiah, the next chapter, chapter 38. I'm going to read verses 1 through to 23. Now, it says, 
Shepatiah, son of Matan, and Gedaliah, son of Pashur, and Jukal, son of Shelemiah, and Pashur, son of Malchijah, heard the words that Jeremiah was speaking to all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, He who stays in this city will die by the sword, and by famine, and by pestilence. But he who goes out to the Chaldeans will live, and have his own life as booty or as a, as a treasure, and stay alive. Thus says the Lord, This city will certainly be given into the hand of the army of the king of Babylon, and he will capture it. So the officials said to the king, Now let this man be put to death, inasmuch as he is discouraging the men of war who are left in this city and all the people by speaking such words to them. For this man is not seeking the well-being of this people, but rather their harm. So King Zedekiah said, Behold, he is in your hands, for the king can do nothing against you. Then they took Jeremiah and cast him into the cistern of Malchijah, the king's son, which was in the court of the guardhouse. And they let Jeremiah down with ropes, now in the cistern there was no water but only mud, and Jeremiah sank into the mud. But Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, a eunuch, while he was in the king's palace, heard that they had put Jeremiah into the cistern. Now the king was sitting in the gate of Benjamin, and Ebed-Melech went out from the king's palace and spoke to the king, saying, My lord the king, these men have acted wickedly in all they have done to Jeremiah the prophet, whom they have cast into the cistern, and he will die right where he is because of the famine, for there is no more bread in the city." Then the king commanded Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, saying, Take thirty men here from under your authority and bring up Jeremiah the prophet from the cistern before he dies. So Ebed-Melech took the men under his authority, went to the king's palace to a place beneath the storeroom, and took out from there worn-out clothes and worn-out rags and let them down by ropes into the cistern to Jeremiah. Then Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, said to Jeremiah, Now put these worn-out clothes and rags under your armpits, under the ropes. And Jeremiah did so. So they pulled Jeremiah up with the ropes and lifted him out of the cistern, and Jeremiah stayed in the court of the guardhouse. Then King Zedekiah sent and had Jeremiah the prophet brought to him at the third entrance that is in the house of the Lord. And the king said to Jeremiah, I'm going to ask you something. Do not hide anything from me. Then Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, If I tell you, will you not certainly put me to death? Besides, if I give you advice, you won't listen to me. But King Zedekiah swore to Jeremiah in secret, saying, As the Lord lives who made this life for us, surely I will not put you to death, nor will I give you over to the hand of these men who are seeking your life. Then Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, Thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, If you will indeed go out to the officers of the king of Babylon, then you will live. This city will not be burned with fire, and you and your household will survive. But if you will not go out to the officers of the king of Babylon, then this city will be given over to the hand of the Chaldeans, and they will burn it with fire, and you yourself will not escape from their hand. Then King Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, I dread the Jews who have gone over to the Chaldeans, for they may give me over to their hand, and they will abuse me. But Jeremiah said, They will not give you over. Please obey the Lord in what I am telling you, that it may go well with you, and you may live." But if you keep refusing to go out, this is the word which the Lord has shown me. Then behold, all the women who have been left in the palace of the king of Judah are going to be brought out to the officers of the king of Babylon. And those women will say, your close friends have misled and overpowered you. While your feet were sunk in the mire, they turned back. They also will bring out all your wives and your sons to the Chaldeans, and you yourself will not escape from their hand, but will be seized by the hand of the king of Babylon, and this city will be burned with fire. Now, I've read uh, this extended passage, a bit longer time, because it's, it's quite a great story. Great in the wrong sense. It's a powerful story. It's one of these moments where um, it doesn't feel like you're reading Bible anymore. It feels like you've stepped out of yourself. I find it quite elegant in its own way. 
And we see this narrative of Jeremiah being imprisoned and then uh, being left into the cistern and then brought out and then using his story of the cistern to preach back at Zedekiah, who's a remarkably weak figure in this, isn't he? Doesn't seem to know how to behave one way or the other. So for these men who we read about, Shephatiah, Gedaliah, Pashur, Jukal, and the other Pashur, it's not enough that Jeremiah was imprisoned. They want something more. They want him dead. So Jeremiah has been advocating, publicly advocating surrender, and they view this as a form of sedition. Hey, we're here to fight, and this guy's undermining our authority. How are we going to rally the troops when the preacher is telling everybody to quit and give up? So they take their petition to Zedekiah, their petition to Zedekiah, who readily agrees. How could I stand against you? He just gives in immediately, and they can do as they please. And so they throw Jeremiah into a cistern. Uh, we're not living in the ancient world, nor are we living in other places. We, are, we don't have cisterns as much. Some of you probably have cisterns on your property uh, where you can gather water. But cisterns hold rainwater when you don't have taps, right? It's so nice. You could turn on the tap, water comes out. Uh, but there were no taps in the ancient world. You had to store it. And so rainwater and runoff would be gathered and put into places where they could keep it and use it at other times. Okay? So this would be maybe a, stone, a pit dug into stone, which would hold the water, or maybe a pit dug into soil lined with stone and plaster, and then would hold it. Here in Jeremiah chapter 38, it looks like it's a mud floor because he sinks into mud at the time. Now, cistern water doesn't stay nice. It gets stagnant quickly. And if it's runoff water in the ancient world, it means it's polluted by feces and animal urine and all sorts of other things. So this is not a very pleasant situation. Uh, I recall for a moment Jeremiah 2.13 where he says at the beginning of his ministry, he speaks for God, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns that can hold no water. So the idea is that cisterns and stale and pure and good and bad are deeply running throughout uh, the life of Jeremiah. So here we find Jeremiah sinking into this mass of deeply smelly cistern mud. I have some idea of what this smelled like. I have some idea. Uh, you see, my grandfather, uh, I, my grandfather was in southern Illinois, and he owned a car wash, one of those car wash with the high-powered sprays, four open bays, and all the stuff would gather in a central pit, a central mud pit. Now, all farmland, right? Farmland all around. So guys show up with their trucks where they've been getting all muddy and they spray off the trucks. But it's not just mud coming off the trucks. It's lots of other fun things that are tied to farmland. So every once in a while, this pit fills up with mud. And what my grandfather would have to do is he'd have to hire one of those vacuum trucks to come and suck out all the mud. But he was kind of cheap and I was kind of available. So he paid me... Okay, he paid me instead to crawl into the pit and stand on about a three-and-a-half-inch ledge with a shovel and bend over halfway, emptying the mud out shovel by shovel into a wheelbarrow. I have never smelled something more disgusting in my life. And I sat with some fear. What if I fall into this thing? And it's a four-foot-deep pit. It's wet mud. Um, and the other thing I remember, for, other than being absolutely miserable for the hours, it was not worth the money I earned in any way whatsoever, is that we got back to my, my grandparents' house. My grandmother wouldn't let me inside. She hosed me off outside. Okay. So I have some idea of perhaps what this might have smelled like. And I think it was probably quite horrid. So is this cistern just a convenient place? I mean, out of sight, out of mind. If he's in the gatehouse, obviously it looks like Jeremiah is in the gatehouse, but he's still preaching sermons. He's talking to people, and they're, they're still listening to them. So he's been put away, but not shut up. And putting him in the cistern is a way to try and put him away and shut him up. 
Um, if you ever visit uh, St. Andrews, the St. Andrews Castle has inside it a bottle dungeon. It's a pretty terrifying place. You go under the castle, into the rock, and there's hewn into the ground a solid rock prison where you'd lower someone down and there was no way to get out. It's a place to put them in so you could forget about your enemies, but you keep them close. Then you could hear their screams. It's pretty terrifying in its own way. So what are you doing? Just trying to get Jeremiah out of sight, out of mind? Or is it possible, I'm not sure this is speculation, is it possible they recall the words of Jeremiah preaching about broken cisterns and they think this is a kind of poetic justice? Oh, you think broken cisterns are a good point? We'll put you in a cistern. Maybe, maybe not. Either way, I think the case is this. To people who have accommodated themselves to the world's power, God's call to surrender is pretty offensive. If they are believing in power, they can do it themselves. They've got to fight with all they have to make it right. If God says, hey, it's time to give up, that's an offensive thing for God to say to them. And they're offended enough to want to kill the messenger. So let's pause here in the story. And let's talk for a minute. What is Jeremiah's mental state? What's going on in him at the bottom of this cistern? Well, let's, we can identify a few contributing factors. I guess he has some outrage at the false accusation. At least I would feel outraged. I don't deserve this. I didn't do anything wrong. What's going on? Maybe a sense of betrayal from the people he's been trying to save. I'm trying to save your life here, and you're trying to kill me. That would be difficult as well. And maybe a sense of betrayal from the God he's given everything to serve. We covered some of this last week with Adam's sermon. The sense of Jeremiah is very honest about the fact that he feels a bit backstabbed by God sometimes. A sense of betrayal from his God. I can imagine a sense of incredible loneliness, isolation, and abandonment in this moment at the bottom of this place. From friends, family, leaders, and God. I'm guessing he feels a sense that his entire ministry life has been futile and wasted. And above all, perhaps, a rising sense of panicked anxiety about the mud climbing up his ankles, knees, quads, hips, stomach, abdomen. How far into this mud does he go? And that is scary. Have you ever been stuck in some mud before? Not, like, not in your like, car. Have you ever had a foot that goes into mud and you're not quite sure if you're going to get it out? Uh, I went camping once as a kid, and we were camping by a little river, and we did some wading and fishing and things, and I, we, were, we were having fun, and there were people there, but I went up to my knees in this river mud, and I, you, can't, you can't move. You have no leverage. You can't get yourself out of these things, and if I had that people there to help me out, I'd still be there today. Um, it'd be just a pile of bones inside a river in Illinois, but um, I think it's a sample again of how Jeremiah may have felt in that moment, a sense of panic and being trapped and fear and terror. So if I were a therapist sitting with Jeremiah on my counseling couch, I would be looking for things like depression, anxiety, and despair. I think he's in a really, really dark place. So let's take this further, because I actually think Jeremiah's time in the cistern may be able to reveal some things about our own mental health. We have to talk about this for a minute, put it in context. You may know this, but the mental health discourse is really quite new. It's really incredibly new, probably the last 30 years. I mean, the Bible never defines a psychological state. You'll never find a passage in here where it says, and Judas was depressed. 
It's, don't, it's not even in the wheelhouse of how the Bible thinks about these things. Uh, they don't give you any inner states. They don't tell you what people are thinking or inner monologues, really. Uh, it's funny how, how we have changed how we think about the person. So what are some things that characterize our modern understanding? I've got a summary here. It's on your notes. I think this is helpful. Recognizing widespread disaffection, disorder, and despair, mental health today aspires through awareness, talk, diagnosis, therapy, medication, and practice to alleviate the discomfort feel in their inner lives. Okay? That's complex, but I think it's helpful. Okay? There's widespread disaffection, disorder, and despair. Widespread. And, and arguably, there's, there's a deeper and wider sense of it that's going on. And people are attempting through awareness, let's become aware of it. Uh, let's talk about it. Let's be open about the problems. Uh, let's diagnose problems openly. Let's pr pr provide some therapy where appropriate. Let's give some medication. And let's build good practices around our lives to alleviate this discomfort that is so widespread and wide-feeling. I think that's part of this. Now, this is new. Like I said, it's new in the last 30 years. When I was growing up, and when many of you were growing up, uh, there were two significant differences. First, we just didn't talk that much about our inner lives. We didn't talk about what was going on on the inside as much. And second, when we did talk about it, we didn't talk about it the way people talk about it today. And so there's been this change. Let me should be clear about some things. The best part, I think, about the modern discourse is that we can openly admit these things. This is the very best part about this. We can talk about things we couldn't talk about them before. Because in my day, I sound so old, back in my day, but in my day, if you admitted you were depressed, there was a strong chance that you could be, you would fear to be sent into an asylum for a time. You'd be, you'd be pegged and put away and things were, it was a dangerous thing to admit any kind of discomfort with your inner states. So that's probably the very best thing that's come from this. But I think there are some concerns as well about how we do this. And maybe the key danger is what I want to call reductionism. To be reductionist means to take something that's very complex and make it overly simple. And I want to highlight a few overly oversimplifications around how we talk about mental health today. One of them is I think people could be reduced to a diagnosis. You could be reduced just to your diagnosis. Oh, you're depressed, that's who you are. Oh, you're anxious, that's who you are. Oh, you're schizophrenic, that's who you are. Oh, you're bipolar, that's who you are. And by giving it a label, you become just that thing and only that thing. So the diagnosis will help you, can become something that identifies you, and then you own it, and then it becomes a kind of cycle that you can't get out of. I think this happens sometimes. Now, there are many people struggling with identity disorders. They don't know who they are, and so what happens is the diagnosis becomes the replacement for the lost identity, and that becomes the whole circle of who the person is. I'm just sick. That's what I am. It's a reduction, right? Because obviously we're more than these things. Okay? So... So, the second thing it does is it can reduce us to just mere biology, mere chemistry. These things happen because of a chemical imbalance. Sorry. Nothing can be done. You're genetically disposed to it. Sorry. Nothing can be done. It's a kind of determinism of life. There's nothing else. Nothing, there's no hope actual for healing. There's just management for your life in these ways. I know there's been some really complex research into alcoholism, and recently they've tried to define it as a disease and as a, as a biological fact. I recognize there are factors of addiction that affect people in different ways, but there are also realities of, like, sin and wickedness and of choosing things that we have to deal with as well. It's not just that. It's reductionistic if it's only those things. A third reduction is that it reduces us to a secular idea of what makes a person. We're much more than just uh, bodies, uh, animal bodies. We have the image of God imprinted on us. 
There's something else about the human person that's bigger than just the secular idea of person. So without reference to the God who made us and his own idea of what constitutes healthy human minds, we're never going to get it quite right. As good as the secular models are for mental health, they're never going to get us to spiritual health. That's part of it. I didn't say they're bad. I didn't say they're wrong. I just said they're inadequate for full health. So I'm going to draw your attention to this quote from a Christian philosopher named C. Stephen Evans. He's writing about Kierkegaard, uh, the Dutch, uh, the Danish, sorry, not Dutch, the Danish philosopher. And I'm going to read this and I'm going to talk about it as we walk through it for a minute. So he says, For the Christian psychotherapist, mental health cannot be defined in neutral or value-free way because the Christian faith implies a definite view of what mental health is. That's what I've just said. It's not value-free. It's not neutral. It's not just pure science. We actually we don't have a value-free idea of the birth. We have a value-added, fully formed. You are in the image of God. Fully formed, you are healed and restored and on a journey with God. Something else is at play here. So we're in this space. He goes on, and I'll pause and make some explanations. Following Kierkegaard's lead, we can say that mental health is the state of the person who is receiving new life from God and learning to be the self God has created him to be. That's astonishing. Mental health is you are receiving life from God and you are learning in a journey of becoming the person God wants you to be. It doesn't mean you've arrived. It doesn't mean everything's right. It means you're in this relational growth process with God. I think that's probably right. Now he uses some categories that are from Kierkegaard's philosophy. The esthete, as a person who lives for the moment, would consider mental health a matter of satisfying as many immediate desires as possible. I'm uncomfortable, I want to be comfortable. I'm unhappy, I want to be happy. I'm distressed, I need to be distressed. I'm sad, I need to distract myself. It's a kind of baseline uh, uh, immature, non-developed way of responding to these things. Next level, legalistic ethicist would consider it a matter of abiding by a certain ideal of behavior. I'm going to be right in my mind if I'm doing the right things. But the Christian, he says, holds to a spiritual view of mental health involving a new scale of values in which pleasure is not the highest good. Okay. Indeed, the Christian who follows Jesus may even choose to suffer at times and will be prepared to accept unavoidable suffering with gratitude from the hand of a loving God. The Christian is not concerned with balancing pleasure and pain, but in becoming the kind of person God intends him to be. Ooh, we are on a different scale, aren't we? It's not about pleasure and pain, not about maximizing fun and minimizing pain. It's about what kind of person am I being called to be in the image of God and how much will it hurt in the process? You see, we are on a different scale. So on the world's terms, we could be very sick while on God's terms, we are healthier than everyone else in the room. Let's move on. Being in possession of mental health in the Christian sense is much bigger than the world's sense. It's going to include some of the world's ideas and terms about mental health, great insights, but it has a very different ultimate goal and framework. And it has some differences. It's much bigger than a diagnosis. So what I mean is this. Christian faith and Christian vision for being mentally healthy will prepare you for the inevitable trials and difficulties of life. Inevitable trials and difficulties. Whether or not you get diagnosed with depression in your life, you are going to be depressed. You're going to have very difficult times. Whether or not you are diagnosed with anxiety, you're going to be deeply fearful and afraid of what's happening in your life. Whether or not you come to a place of absolute despair and need to be committed, you will despair of moments and things in your life. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. 
Whether or not you are diagnosed with distress because of abandonment or false accusations, or you have despair about your career or a sense of loss of identity, how will you manage these things in light of your Christian faith? This is the question we want to address. So in a moment, I'm going to highlight what I believe are four lessons on Christian mental health. Uh, but before I get to that, I want to, I want to note what I think is the key characteristic of Christian mental stability. And here's what it is. A key characteristic of Christian mental health is resilience. A key characteristic of Christian mental health is resilience. In short, the trial is going to come. Every single person here will experience the trial. What will enable you to keep going when it happens? What's going to make that happen? Now, I've used the word resilience, but I mean it in two very different ways. Okay? Resilience, one, I want to call natural resilience. Natural resilience. So some of you have this. You've got a kind of natural stick to Some of you, probably by a biology or disposition or by the training in your life and history, uh, you've learned how to persevere, how to stick to a problem, how to keep going when the going gets tough. You just have it naturally. The Lord bless you and keep you, okay? But type two is what I want to call supernatural resilience. This is where you know you're weak. You know you don't have it in you. You know you don't have strength or power or focus, but you are relying on the Spirit of God to support you for the task at hand. Okay? Now let me be clear about a couple of things. Some of you are naturally resilient, but you've interpreted this as a spiritual value. Some of you are just biologically good at it, and you think you're faithful because of it. Well, it's a good gift to have, and you, we need it in the church. But don't confuse the two things, because sometimes you've spoken to people who don't have the gift, and you've looked down on them for not having the resilience you have just naturally. Okay? There's others of you here who've condemned yourselves for not being resilient enough, when the truth is, you just don't have the natural gifts for it. You don't have it. And you've beaten yourself up for not being like other people, and you've looked up to them when they have a resilience you don't have. Now, I believe pretty firmly the Christian faith needs both kinds. We need a kind of natural stick but we also desperately need the Spirit of God to carry us through. Because it's not about our strength in the end, but about God's strength working through it. And more than that, a Christian church needs both kinds of people. Because we have to support each other when we don't feel like we have it together. It's vastly important. So, let's talk about how I think Jeremiah may be able to help us as we build our picture of Christian mental health. Um, I should be very upfront and clarify that um, these lessons perhaps don't come expressly from our text the way I would normally like to. I'm pulling from theology and from some other disciplines more broadly, but I think some of them do come quite nicely. But let's try and draw four lessons from this time in the cistern. So how do we, have, uh, how do we build up this resilience? How do we prepare ourselves for the trials? Lesson number one is this. You need to strive for a right relationship with God. Strive for a right relationship with God. So many things in our lives are out of control. Uh, whether you get fired this week, whether you go to the doctor and get a terrible diagnosis, whether somebody breaks up with you or your spouse leaves, whether your kids get into an accident or there's a fight, um, whether you are become deeply anxious and crippled by anxiety and suddenly can't walk outside your door, these things are out of your control. You're not in control of these things. The only thing you can control is whether or not you're right with God. You have power to manage this. You can talk to him no matter what's going on. You can pray no matter what's going on. You can confess. You can get your heart right with the Almighty. You have that power. 
And I think one of the reasons Jeremiah can endure his suffering is because he is ultimately right with God. I mean, it's the fact that he's been serving God that put him in this place in the first place, right? I was obedient, and now I'm here. Thanks a lot, big guy. Um, He's right with the Lord, I think. And being right with the Lord doesn't mean he doesn't uh, complain. He does complain very openly and very fulsomely, right? Uh, Jeremiah was right when almost everyone around him was not right isolating being right with God. But I think we should also remember that all distress is a little more manageable when we're right with God. Everything going on in your life, every trial you face will be a little bit easier if things are right with the Lord. Because if they're not right, you begin to wonder if the distress is caused by being not right with the Lord. Our minds begin to play tricks on us. We begin to wonder, we begin to second guess all our actions. We just have to stay right with the Lord. If we have done something, if we are in distress because of personal sin, then sin muddies our perceptions and makes us confused even further, and that makes things even more difficult. But when you have faith in the power of God, you can trust His plans, even when you don't see where they're going, even from the bottom of a well. As I said, and I will say again and again today, the trial will come. For some of you, the trial's in full force right now. You are, I talked about being stuck in this stinky well and sinking down, and you were like, that's me. It's awful, and I don't know how I'm going to get out of this. And for some of you, there's no cistern quite like the cistern of knowing that you are going to die. It's coming. It's around the corner. So what do we do with this? I've seen this firsthand many, many times. In final meetings next to hospital beds with Christians who have faith and are right with the Lord, and it's transformative. Because they're right with the Lord, they're not afraid. They know what's coming. And they're not concerned. Well, they're concerned. They're concerned about their family, concerned about people. They're sad. But there's a deep sense of, no, I'm right with God in these moments. It's very powerful. Like I said, there are many things in your life that you cannot control, but one of the things you can control is your relationship with God. So if you want to weather life storms with resilience, then get right with God. Don't wait. Get right with Him today. Second lesson, I want to encourage you to build habits of godly boredom. Habits of godly boredom. We are very bad at being bored. Very bad. Constant distractions, right? Every minute we got our phones out, we're looking at them, we're watching YouTube. We can't spend any minutes alone or any minutes in silence. The other day the power went out in Lynn Valley and our family went for a walk because it was hot and it was nice. And we passed one house where there were three kids outside all on their devices. And I thought, man, they don't know how to be bored. They don't know how just to weather being bored or doing anything. What a sad thing. How have they been trained for these things? And it's near panic when we can't get an internet signal. We're unable to be silent or still or alone. We've forgotten how to fill our time in productive, godly ways. So what do I think Jeremiah does with his time in prison in the cistern? Let's be clear, the, sex, the, the text doesn't say in this moment. But we know he keeps preaching from prison. otherwise he wouldn't have irritated these four guys or five guys so much. Uh, I anticipate that he prayed because other texts, we hear about his prayer times. I expect that he reviewed the scriptures he's memorized because he's obviously got Deuteronomy in his head. And so the question lands to us, how do we build habits of godly boredom now in preparation for when things get difficult later? How are we building godly boredom in this moment? So what are the songs in your heart? It's a good question. What are the songs in your heart? Because when the trial really hits and when you're at the bottom of the well, the T-Swift playlist isn't going to do the trick. 
It's not going to be it. So what are the songs of praise in your heart? What are the books and articles that you're reading? How are you filling yours? How are you feasting so that you have something in you to eat or something within you? What scripture have you memorized? How is God's word inside you so that you have it at readiness so when you don't have access to these things? All right. And how quickly do you turn to prayer? When the trial hits, is your, is your discourse open to God already? Or is that the first time you're knocking on his door in a while? And once again, let me be clear. The time to practice these things is not when you've entered the trial. It's not, you don't wait till you're in the well and then start doing these things. It's too late at that point. You're going to be too oppressed to begin praying and reading books and learning songs. Instead, the time to begin is now. So the next time you're in line at the grocery store, maybe consider putting the phone down and praying for the people around you. Uh, or the next time you're waiting for an appointment or a meeting and you've got some discretionary time, you're there, you're there on time, but the physician is an hour late. Um, instead, of, instead of eating the time with YouTube, read something. What does that look like for you? Okay. Or the next time you're alone, have you maybe take stock of your inner life. In fact, how are you at being alone? How are you at this? Uh, Bonhoeffer says, it won't be on the screen, whoever cannot be alone should beware of community. Whoever cannot stand being in community should beware of being alone. That's probably right. Wise. And solitude is a habit of godly boredom. Now, hang on. I should be clear. I am not saying that there isn't pleasure to be had in distractions. I'm not saying videos are bad. I'm not saying enjoying people's company is bad. I'm not saying even that wasting time is bad. These things, are, there's goods in all these things, and it's nice sometimes just to sit and do nothing. I love it. Um, but they have to be balanced by our development of these habits of godly boredom. I think they have to go side by side. Okay, third lesson. Third lesson is this. Cultivate godly friendships. Cultivate godly friendships. So in the passage we read today, Jeremiah is saved by this Ethiopian eunuch named Ebed-Melech. He's an outsider. He's a cultural and physical outsider. He's prohibited from participating in the religious life of Israel uh, because of his status. Uh, but he puts himself at risk for Jeremiah. It's fascinating. This foreigner puts himself at risk. He advocates to the king on Jeremiah's behalf, and then he problem solves. He doesn't just drag him out. He also gets these, these rags and cloths so that Jeremiah can be lifted out. Uh, I don't know how old he is. I'm imagining someone a bit older at this time. I'm imagining his bones aren't as strong, and he's not, he doesn't have the strength to get himself out in these ways. Now, we really don't know about their relationship, how they met, what happened. Did they hang out together after the fact and tell stories about time in the cistern? I don't know. What we can say is that Ebed-Melech acted as a friend to Jeremiah in the moment. He was a friend when it counted. And we also have to cultivate some godly friendships. Uh, I, just, I was thinking about this this past week, about characteristics of godly friendships, and I just have a few that I want to highlight for you. One of them um, a characteristic of godly friends is that they offer you a comforting presence. A comforting presence. They're around you when things are tough, but they don't try to fix it. Remember how Job in the Bible loses absolutely everything? Absolutely everything in a matter of weeks. His kids, his crops, his wealth, his, his body is made sick. He's kept his wife who nags him, which is a kind of biblical joke, I think, in there as well. Um, and all sorts of things happen. And Job's three friends show up. And for seven days, they're the best friends in the world because they sat with their friend and wept. And then the eighth day, they opened their mouths and ruined it. Okay. 
Some of you, so I'm, and you, know, you know the value of a comforting presence of a friend, a friend who is there with you, who doesn't need to fix you, doesn't have to explain you, doesn't have to do things. They may say things to you. They may rebuke you and speak to you and talk to you and challenge you, but their, their comforting presence is the most important thing. And I think you know that, and I think we want these kind of people in our lives for when the trial comes. Comforting presence. I think there's an aspect of perspective. Your friends give you perspective. You're in the trial now, but I knew you when you weren't in the trial. I, I knew you when you weren't in the cistern. I knew you when you weren't in the well. And I loved you then, and I love you now, and I'm still going to be with you. They give you a sense of continuity. They can speak who you are into you. It's quite wonderful in these ways. They offer you help. <laughs> they, they, they creatively problem-solve the solutions of your life. And when it's appropriate, they give you the help you need to get out of these things. And I think also that godly friendships do provide a kind of distraction sometimes. I don't know how long Jeremiah was in the cistern. Did anyone sit at the top and tell him what was going on? Bring him the news day by day? Maybe Jeremiah was a fan of the cricket, right? And he wanted to know what was going on with the Moab, I don't know, the Moabite team versus the, the, the Jerusalem jesters. Maybe the friend sat at the top and narrated the cricket match for him play by play to distract his mind. That's also a part of godly friendship, to be present with someone, to give them something to think about, um, to be companionable. Again, the time to develop godly friendships is not once everything goes wrong. Now's the time. So when the trial comes, you have those friendships in place. The fourth and final lesson I want to highlight is this. I want you to seek the Spirit. This is probably the least present aspect of our text today, that we would seek the Spirit in these ways, because the Spirit is not manifestly present in this passage except for the way that Jeremiah speaks in the Spirit to other people. But what I've said about resilience is accurate, that there's both a natural and a supernatural resilience. Then seeking to be filled with the Spirit now is a critical practice for when we need Him later. If you're filled with His power, if you're waiting until everything goes wrong to be filled with the Spirit, eh, it's going to be a rough go. But if you're being filled with the Spirit day by day now, as you need Him, as you need Him in small ways, you need Him in minute ways, as you need Him to help you with small things, if you're throwing your strength and power and learning to, to rely on His power in these moments, it's going to be a lot easier later. In fact, if I'm going to give you one piece of spiritual advice today, I've given you lots of spiritual advice, I'm going to give you one piece that I want you to stay with. It's start small. Don't start with the big prayers. Start with the small prayers. Don't start with the big spiritual stuff. Start with the small spiritual stuff. Everything big in the spiritual life begins with tiny steps of obedience toward God. And if you'll take those small steps today, you'll be prepared for the trials when they come later. So, resilient Christian faith. As Christians made in the image of God, we have a definite idea about mental health. It's about having a mix of, I think, natural and supernatural resilience in the context of Christian community. And I've given you some ways to develop this together. Getting right with God, godly boredom, godly friendships, and being filled with the Spirit. Now, I want to be extra, abundantly, explicitly clear. I am not offering a prescription for how to deal with mental distress. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm not telling you that if you are experiencing uh, symptoms and pains of various mental distresses, do these things, and I bet you'll feel better. I'm not saying that. I am saying that you will face trials, and things will go wrong. And if you want to be better equipped to deal with those trials, start these things now. And this is going to build you the strength you need in one another and in community to be godly people. And now, the time to practice it, of course, is here in the church. 
Here are my last comments. I think it's funny today to hear younger people talk about taking mental health days. Because it's one of the things that we just didn't do. It beckoned, back in my day, we didn't do. Okay, anyway, I feel, I feel cranky and crotchety. Um, it's one of the things we didn't do. It's funny, we called it the weekend. Every weekend was the two mental health days that followed one another. Um, but there's something wholesome about it. I get you want to reset. You need a sense of getting away and getting right with the Lord. But I do want to encourage you to recognize that what we are doing right now is the most important Christian mental health activity that we gather on a Sabbath day of rest, for restoration, for worship of the Almighty God, to reorient ourselves towards what He does, and to be in a fellowship of godly friendships who will support each other when the trials come. This is the most important activity that you can do to develop this strength and resilience. I'm gonna invite our musicians to come up and take their place. We've got a couple songs at this time, and. Um, I want to encourage you in this time. We've got our prayer team. I've written their names down. We've got uh, Elise and Ebenezer back here. We're going to put them over here by the 23rd Street exit. And then we have Gary and Isabel, and we're going to throw them upstairs by the balcony. Um, I encourage you to go for prayer. Uh, And I encourage you, if you are, if you're close to the bottom of the cistern and you feel like this stuff is creeping, Let's get some prayer. Don't hesitate. Don't wait. Let us support and uphold you in these. I invite you to stand, and we will sing together now.